Do you know a woman who is driving positive change, growth, or innovation in her organization or community? The second annual Success Women of Influence Awards are underway. So whether a friend, a family member, or peer, give the recognition she deserves. The Success Women of Influence Awards honor, celebrate, and empower the extraordinary women whose contributions have impacted their industries and their communities, and the personal and professional lives of those in their world. Visit success.com slash W-O-I to nominate the women of influence in your life today. Even beyond just the behaviors of the people who invest, you have to look at the asset itself. When you think about meme stocks, which are stocks that gain momentum because they are online or featured in some Reddit forum, think about GameStop, AMC. When a stock's value is determined by popularity online instead of that company's real life financial performance, what exactly are you buying in that scenario? Because I think people forget in order to trade, you got to put some money in. You got to buy something first to know to sell it when it's up or down. And so none of these are like hunches that are made on paper. You got to, you got to put, you know, some, some, some money in. You got to put some skin in the game. Skin in the game. I don't know what (laughs) metaphor I was trying to think of, but it was not coming. (laughs) Thank you. Welcome to the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Julian. And today we're talking about the differences between short-term trading and long-term investing. We're going to explain what both of them are. We're going to talk a little bit about the differences between the two, share some benefits that might be unique to both of them, and hopefully clear up any misconceptions you may be having about them. But first, please rate and review the Rich and Regular podcast wherever you listen to the show. And I want to give a shout out to Auntie Queen for Auntie her Queen. Auntie Queen for her five star review entitled Goldmine. She says that we serve serious topics with a side of my charming humor and your dry wit. <laughs> and she also okay, said, <laughs> "It is a little dry." That is offensive. <laughs> She also said that we provide very helpful information and insightful comments and called us her super smart out of state niece and nephew in her head. Okay, who are so kind. She's older than me. So I'll let it slide because you look older than I am. She went on. She said we're kind and patient enough to say things plainly enough for her boomer auntie spirit to understand. Okay. And, <laughs> auntie Queen, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to leave us a review. All right. So I am excited about this episode because I know there is a ton of interest in trading and it's feel, I feel like it's one of those things that I've been intrigued about for a really long time. And I probably will take it up as a hobby at some point in my life, but I'm just not at that stage where it could be just a hobby. You know, at this point, I would need to do a lot of deprogramming of my current belief system around what my money is for because I'm not someone who looks at terrible odds and is like, yeah. I kind of want to try that as a hobby for fun. (laughs) Maybe at some point I'll have enough room, you know, when I'm out of the child rearing part of my life to be like, yeah, let's just throw it in there. So speaking of child rearing. So the other day we were watching and by we, I mean me and Bo, I forget where you were. You may have gone to the sauna or something like that. And I was on Instagram and I saw that one of our friends, Bobby, had gone skydiving and it reminded me, I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, first of all, I was like, welcome to the club, right? Because that's what you do when, you know, when you see someone else has jumped out of a plane, you say, welcome to the club because I've been there 
And it's an amazing experience. And it reminded me while I was with him, I was like, you know what? I don't think I ever told him that I went skydiving. I don't even think he knows what skydiving is. Right. So I was didn't like, didn't even know that was a possibility. Didn't even know that like, was a possibility. Why would people like, do why that? Would <laughs> why would you jump out of a plane? But I thought he was like, well, that means he would also not be scared by this thought. So I was really curious to see what he thought about it. Long story short, I pulled up the video and I showed him the video and he was just like looking at it. And I think the first part he was like looking at me because I did it on my 30th birthday. Looked totally different. He was like, is that you? I'm like, that, first of all, that is me. And this is what it looks like. And it was cool. And I looked at it, went through a cloud and, you know, I was blown away. And he was just kind of like, you know, unmoved, like not scared, not excited, nothing. Long story short, when I was done, he kind of, he says, uh, oh, uh, you, you're such a risk taker, Dada. And I was like, whoa. Like, where did you get that from? And then I remember that they talk about risk at school. And I was like, wow, am I a risk taker? Maybe I used to be. All that to say, I'm in a very similar boat as you, because I know it's something that a lot of people have done. I have tried to get involved with trading and, and being a little bit more actively involved with our money and our investing. I simply just have a preference for how I want to make money. Exactly. And it's not that way that involves or introduces significantly more stress to my life. And I'm like, I'm on the side of life that is trying to minimize stress. Right. Like, I don't want to have to do with that. And there are things that I'm just much more willing to obsess about, like things yeah. that I have much more interest in. And it's just not really something that you know tickles my fancy these days. But I do know a lot of people want to do it. And a lot of people have been doing it, which is part of the reason why we wanted to make sure that we're talking about it in this podcast episode. Yes. So that's a great jumping off point because I just want to clarify this. At the outset, there are infinite ways to make money. You can make money in the short term. You can make money in the long term. You can make money in the stock market, in real estate, in trucking. You can make money just about anywhere. Just because we personally don't trade does not mean that we are anti-trading. We have colleagues in the space who teach other people how to oh, do yeah. it and are fully transparent about the risks. And we even have some family members that dabble in trading. But what we've learned after many, many, many conversations with people is that the most successful traders have an advantage in two areas. It's either in time or in information. So just keep that in mind as we talk through today's episode, as you're weighing whether this is something that you're interested in. Ask yourself, do I have an advantage in information or do I have an advantage in time that's going to make this really worthwhile for me? Yeah. Okay. So trading, what is it? Short-term trading. It also goes by the name day trading. Some people, there's like a subset, well, there's swing trading, which is a little yeah. bit different. It's all trading, right? Same idea. And it's basically the style of investing where people buy and sell assets. And by assets, I mean stocks or currency or cryptocurrency in a relatively short time frame. And they're basically looking to profit from the price movement. So when I say short term, I'm specifically referring to a time period that is less than a year. Like that's the general rule in the world of finance. If it's less than a year, that's typically considered short term and anything over a year or longer is considered Long term. So when you think about stocks and you think about stock prices and the fact that they move, like they move a lot, they move throughout the day, several like times, several times a day. Like you hear, you know, the starting price, the, the end price, and you see the percentage change. Like it is a constant, constant thing, and it moves for a wide variety of factors. The most fundamental of those factors is basically going to be supply and demand. So when there's demand and more people want to buy a stock because a company is, let's say, slated to do well, then the price per share goes up 
And on the flip side, when more people aren't so optimistic about a stock's future and they want to dump it or sell it, then the price per share falls or goes down. Now, when you think about all of the different things that can affect those movements, that it's a long and complicated list. There's the news. There are earning reports. I'm sure if you listen to any degree of financial media, you hear about earnings reports and quarterly earnings and those kinds of things. There could be product launches. So a company is planning to do something amazing or be the first uh, to introduce this new style of product that's supposed to help the company make more money and as a result have a positive impact on the stock. It could be bad news like legal troubles. It could be new leadership or an acquisition. Any number of things, right? This is what the financial media talks about on a regular basis. Now, even if we're not talking about the company in particular and we're looking at more global events, things like war or new political leaders in a country that could have an impact on an industry or a new political ideology in a region in, let's say, Europe that has an impact on global markets. Think about what Brexit did in terms of bringing the stock markets to a standstill a few years ago. Those things can have an impact on the movements of a stock as well. There's also things like interest rates. Obviously, if you've been in the United States and you've watched the financial news, like that's been something that the Fed Reserve has been involved with in terms of manipulating, in some cases, the flows or ebbs and flows of the stock market. So basically, when they tweak those interest rates, there is always going to be some type of effect on stocks. And lastly, you have just investor and consumer sentiment, right? Like those psychological factors like fear and greed that drives stock prices and it makes it go up and down. So all that to say, like when you're thinking about these things, like it's a lot, many of which you don't have a lot of the information needed, but you're sort of trying to synthesize it all to make the best guess, if you will, or the best educated guess, if you will, to hopefully lead to a profit on your end. And just one of those factors, right, could be enough to create the movement that you're looking for. But when you think about that, just make sure you're factoring in all of the different things that could be having either a positive or negative effect on your investment or trading strategy. Right. So if you understand that markets are always moving and prices adjust accordingly, then you also realize there's an opportunity to profit from that, especially if you have the advantages that we talked about, time and or information. There's a reason why Congress people consistently beat the market because they have a sneak peek to... It's supposed to be illegal. They might be listening. But there's a reason why they have, you know, these huge portfolios because they have an advantage with information. They know exactly what companies are trying to do before they do them. Now, day trading has been around for a really long time, even though it's highly competitive and risky. In the traditional model, you would buy or sell a stock and the broker would take this commission on the dollar volume of the transaction. But new age trading happens on these digital brokerages like Robinhood, and it operates completely different than traditional trading. So Robinhood, not only were they the first, one of the first brokerages to offer commission-free trading, they also had a really clean interface. So it was very simple to see what you were doing. It wasn't like the charts and the graphs of Wall Street of yesterday. They gave you access to trade crypto and they had this social element so you could share your portfolio and trading activity with other people. And it almost built like this sense of community, Oh yeah, which is all different from how it used to happen. Community is putting it nice. Yeah. Community. Uh, yeah, there's another C word. That, that I might use for Robinhood users. But, Cult. But I didn't say it. <laughs> Cheerio. Yeah. 
cheerleaders. Cheerleaders. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Cheerleaders. So when you when you put all those features together, a lot of people discovered trading recently because of apps like Robinhood, yeah. which made it really fun and accessible to a lot of new investors. You know, if you think about the timing of that app and its popularity, people were bored oh, and yeah. looking for something to do. And then here comes this app with this piece of financial culture that was typically gatekept from the rest of us. And it allowed people to create additional income streams when they needed it. So trading was a fun way to earn some really quick and easy money. What could go wrong? Lots. Yeah. So (laughs) it's it's worth noting that even though they gained a bunch of popularity for those reasons, they also faced a ton of criticism and controversy because of their, I would call it game-like features that kind of made investing seem like a game, like a video game, like gambling. Like it was really fun and cool. And to your point, it helped them stand out relative to a lot of the older, simple, straightforward, like no fun or sex appeal yeah. brokerage firms. That like on Robinhood, you would get these confetti animations when yes. you make a trade versus like when you make a trade in real life using like a, you know, a broker, you don't get nothing. Correct. It's so, like sending an email. So if you're familiar with this, you think about, let's say, and you have an iPhone, I don't know what Android users have. Maybe they do, but you send a text message to someone like happy birthday or something in an iPhone. And if they have an iPhone, (laughs) then, you know, there may be like fireworks or something like that. Or whenever people send us happy new year, you know, at the beginning of the year, you get all these text messages and it typically comes with all this effect and jazz and pizzazz and all that other stuff. Robin Hood did the exact same thing to entice you to continue going and to celebrate your big wins. Now, the biggest issue was actually related to their payment for order flow. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because they weren't charging a commission for those trades. The way that they made money was by sending customer orders to big trading firms in exchange for payment. So you would place your buy or your sell order on Robinhood, and then they would route it to a third-party company who was supposed to execute your trade quickly and at the best available price. Now, all of this would happen within a number of seconds, and Robinhood was like particularly adept at doing this. And it's one of the things that really, really made them stand out from the rest of the crowd. I found this video on the Wall Street Journal that I think did a really, really good job of summarizing what they did and how they made money. And here's how it works. Let's say you open the app and purchase 10 shares of a stock for $25 a share. Robinhood will send your order to a high-speed trading firm, which uses powerful computers to make lightning-fast trades. The high-speed trading firm will sell you the 10 shares of stock from its inventory. There is usually a small difference of a fraction of a penny between the price it gets in the marketplace and the price you get. That's how the firm makes a profit. For instance, it might have bought the stock for $24.99 and change. Then it turned around and sold it to you for $25 while pocketing the difference. High-speed traders do this over and over again, and the profits can add up to hundreds of millions of dollars. Meanwhile, Robinhood gets a cut too. High-speed trading firms send Robinhood rebates in exchange for the right to handle customer trades. Usually, this is also a small fraction of a penny per share. These rebates are payment for order flow, and they account for most of Robinhood's revenues. Okay, so that's how Robinhood makes money. I thought that was a pretty good way of kind of describing how it all works. They basically, again, made money through these third-party firms based on the number of orders that it was sent at them. So the more trades users would make, the more orders that they would send and the more money that they would make. The concern was that Robinhood might actually prioritize sending orders to the firms that basically paid them the most rather than those who would offer their users or investors, people like you and I, 
the best prices. Now, keep in mind, this same payment for order flow is a common practice in the brokerage industry because it's what allows them to offer commission-free trading. But the potential conflict of interest has always been a cause for concern about whether investors are even getting the best possible deal when they place trades through platforms that use payment for order flow. So if you think about it, if you had the ability to choose between which order you were going to pay attention to, you're either going to pay attention to the $100 order or the million dollar order, right? If you're only making a fraction of a penny on every single one, you there's like this built-in conflict of interest there. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be a little bit more interested in the one that's going to earn me more money. And that fraction of moments in time, like unfortunately that's to a lot of people, mom and pop investors, people who only had a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars to begin with to lose out on a lot of money. And they received a lot of backlash for that. Yeah. There are several other criticisms of Robinhood, but we'll just let the SEC handle those. Right. But platform aside, if we go back to trading itself, this hyped up era that we just lived through kind of reminds me of when flipping houses was the thing. Remember that when it seemed like every time yes. you turned on HGTV, there was another home flipping show. Yes. And I remember all of the buy and hold real estate investors were poo-poo in the practice because of all the volatility it was causing in the market and it just wasn't stable. So if you think about investing and what it is by definition, it's the process of purchasing something with the intent of that item increasing in market value. And anytime we're exploring alternative investment styles, there's this question about whether something is too risky to be considered an investment because your intent or what you know to be true is outweighed by everything you don't know or can't predict. And I definitely think short-term trading is a form of investing, but whether it's an effective or a proven form of investing is kind of where I veer slightly left. Yeah. And this is where we also have the benefit of looking at some data. And so I looked at uh, three different sets of data and I'm not going to go into great depth in all of them, but I'm just going to hit on a couple of the highlights. The first one was a study that was actually done in Brazil. And they basically looked at the trading activity for Brazilian day traders over a set period of time. Now, you may be thinking like, why would they do it in Brazil? I'm going to get to all of that. But all you should know right now is that Brazil is actually the third largest market in the world. So it's not tiny by any means. Like It's a pretty, pretty big market. And obviously, this is a pretty good sample to use as a reference point. Long story short, what they found was that 97% of the people who were doing this lost money. And even the people who made money were making like just enough money, like slightly over like minimum wage of what you may have been able to earn if you were working in Brazil during that period of time. Mm. So then there was another study and this was actually conducted in Taiwan, same setup, same deal, looking at these traders, trying to see what the results were. And the results were actually even worse, like literally less than 1% of the people made money. And so, boom, there you have it in terms of like this point of view or this developing point of view on the perils of trading. And they were doing these studies, by the way, because of the rise. Like there were so many new entrants, so many retail investors, so many mom and pop people jumping into this game, primarily because someone told them that they could teach them how to do it. And it just did not result very well. So I'm pretty sure that the 99% of our listeners are also here in the United States. So you might be thinking in our American exceptional point of view and saying, oh, well, those are the Brazilians and the Taiwanese. So what might happen if we did a study here in the United States? And of course they did. So there was a study that was done at the University of California, Berkeley, did the exact same thing, looked at a defined period of time to see all of the different activity for day traders. And what they found was that only 10% of the people who were actually doing this, right? So 
off the top, slightly better results, but only 10% of the people who were actually able to do this were earning any kind of like meaningful money. And when they did, the average ROI was just under 12% during that time period. But when you look at that 12% relative to the S&P during that period of time, it's 18%, right? So what we're comparing here is not necessarily the viability, but we're talking about at the end of the day, return. How much money might be returned to you as an investor if you were to actively day trade relative to if you were to just buy something as simple as an S&P 500 index fund. And during that time, as a result of this study, you would have done better if you actually invested, right? So I think it just helps to kind of hone in on the idea or the likelihood. You know, we talk a lot about the differences between possibility and probability. You know, like it's possible that you could be really, really good at this and make a lot of money, but it's highly improbable. Right. Which actually leads me to another study and I'll end on this. But it was actually a study done by Fidelity and Fidelity is not unique in this sense. This is just the one that I landed on. But again, one of the common studies that you see is what if you just did that? What if you just kept it simple and invested in the S&P 500 index fund? And that's exactly what they did. They looked at what would have happened if you'd done that from the period of 1980, which I was born in 1980. So maybe that's why I was drawn to this particular study. But between 1980 and 2022, And of course, you would have done really, really well if you'd invested and allowed that money to compound over that period of time. But what I thought was really interesting was that 90% of the returns that you would have earned if you had done simple buy and hold over that stretch of time came from just 50 trading days. So if you think about all the days that the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ are actually open, it's not seven days a week. It's five days a week. There are some off days or holidays, et cetera. They're about 15,000 days basically over that stretch of time. 90% of the returns on that investment from 1980 to 2022 would have come from just 50 days, right? So keeping it simple, buying and holding, but also I would say like how hard it might be to pick and choose which day is the day where you're going to see any type of really big movements for the stock market as a whole. So I think it really helps to, I would say those four studies combined, I think really help to frame up the core differences and the risks involved with day trading versus long-term investing. Yes. All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with some more. Are you ready to supercharge your life and get access to more opportunities than you've ever dreamed of? Then join me, James Whitaker, in the Win the Day Accelerator. Presented by Success, this entire eight-part program has been created to help you activate your winning life once and for all. You'll gain clarity on your goals and purpose. You'll learn how to quickly overcome challenges and you'll get proven tips and frameworks that will deliver you big results fast in all areas of your life. So if you're ready to win, join me in the Win the Day Accelerator. To sign up, visit success.com slash WTD. I remember one night we were talking about this with a friend who had gotten involved in trading and you told him something like, you got to know the difference between an experienced investor and an informed gambler. And I want to talk through the logic there because I thought it was a really profound point. And I think the biggest difference between the two is the role that risk plays. There are plenty of experienced investors who participate in day trading because they've done their homework, they set goals, they're diversified, and they rely really heavily on technical analysis where they study these charts and patterns and different indicators of short-term price movement. An informed gambler, on the other hand, is acting on a hunch. All of their analysis and research is based on hearsay or something they might have seen some anonymous person say online or on a podcast. So they're informed and willing to take on more risk, but their strategy is usually based on 
capturing fluctuations with assets that are inherently volatile. So it's a gamble, right? So if the asset you know is constantly moving and you're trying to catch a falling knife, it's inherently risky. And that kind of makes it more of a gamble. Even beyond just the behaviors of the people who invest, you have to look at the asset itself. When you think about meme stocks, which are stocks that gain momentum because they are online or featured in some Reddit forum, think about GameStop, AMC. When a stock's value is determined by popularity online instead of that company's real life financial performance, what exactly are you buying in that scenario? Because I think people forget in order to trade, you got to put some money in. You got to buy something first to know to sell it when it's up or down. And so none of these are like hunches that are made on paper. You got to you got to put, you know, some 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 money in. You got to put some skin in the game. Skin in the game. I don't know what (laughs) metaphor I was trying to think of, but it was not coming. (laughs) Thank you. As you were talking, I was, you know, we've had this conversation thousands of times. And I always think about the role that sports plays in this effort, because I think that's part of the reason why people have so much outsized or oversized confidence in their ability to predict what's going to happen. Because I think that they're pretty good or they feel pretty good about their abilities to do it with things like sports. And because you can actually gamble with sports, I think that's also part of the reason why people tend to conflate gambling and investing. And we, we, you know, we always use the same words when we talk about intent and people are like, well, I, I intend on making money. So this is, this is <laughs> right. investing, right? There's like a sense of favorability that is tied to the term investing, whereas gambling has like this negative connotation to it. And probably a combination of both. We probably need to do a better job of using different language so that people can not escape from that so easily. But I do think that sports and sports media, very similar to financial media, plays a role in why people feel so confident. Because if you watch the news every single day, they're speaking in very absolute terms, right? They're not, it's not like they end every news segment in the financial news by saying, but don't listen to me. Or, you know, I don't, but I don't know what's going to happen, right? Like financial advisors kind of have to add those kinds of disclaimers, but the news really doesn't kind of have to do that. So I think that's part of the reason why people feel so well-informed. Now, with that said, I want to be clear that there's nothing wrong, like even gambling. Like, I don't really care if you gamble or not, but there are real consequences when you are gambling the money that could be going towards your retirement. Right. So the best gamblers aren't just the people who understand the game and the industry. They're the people who can afford to lose. To be honest, like the same is true even in business. The people who are most successful aren't always the people who are best at what they do. They're simply the people who could actually afford to go a longer period of time without giving up. Right. They're they're the last pioneer standing or the last of the early adopters, right? They're rewarded for doing the hard work and for their ability to withstand the downturn that knocked off all the competition. And that's why they have such remarkable success stories. And so I think a lot of people get caught up in that because they believe that success is purely this matter of effort and putting in the work. And I think that that's that's definitely an important ingredient, but you really need to look at things like luck Mm -hmm. being on your side or timing, which again, you have no control over working in your favor. Even when I think about our situation and the things that we've benefited from, we were fortunate or unfortunate rather in that. I know I was in 2007 buying a home in the middle of the downturn, but we were also fortunate to be employed. We were fortunate to get great promotions shortly thereafter. And we were fortunate to have done the work and to recognize that, hey, after 2008, there's really nowhere to go but up from here. And so we had to make an educated guess, guesstimate, if you will, 
with what we wanted to do with our income. And that was a huge contributor in addition to having relatively high income as to why we did so well, right? doesn't make me any smarter than anyone. It just means that we made an informed decision with intention. And as a result, our investments paid off over the long run, like a lot of other people who were able to do that over a certain period of time. And so I think when you think about risk, there's always the phrase or the adjective of calculation, the idea of making calculated risk. And I think that's a really, really important part of it. But you can't you can't ignore the fact that having the ability or the comfort or the willingness to lose that money plays a really, really important part in your ability to succeed over the long run. And what I found or have seen more often than not is that with short-term investors, they don't really have that. They right. don't have that runway. And that contributes to why so many people don't really do it so well. Yeah, I completely agree. So I want to end the episode with sharing some unique benefits to long-term investing. The first of which is being less stress. When you are a long-term buy and hold investor, there's really no need to constantly watch the market and experience the stress associated with all of those daily ups and downs uh, on a given stock price. You don't really have the emotional stress of trying to make a rapid decision while managing this heightened emotional response that you're describing. So you're also less likely to make impulsive trades, which are the ones that kind of lead to losses, right? The second benefit is just less pressure on timing as a whole. Like I said earlier, trying to catch a swing in price can feel like trying to catch a falling knife where, you know, when and where you grab that knife absolutely (laughs) matters on the outcome. And I just have a strong belief that the cadence or the pace of your work ultimately shapes your temperament. And when you're a day trader, you're doing these frequent buying and selling transactions. Every phone notification matters. When you're a committed buy and hold investor, you can mostly ignore them. And I do. (laughs) Like I mostly ignore all of the dings and and rings of my phone. Sure, you can. And I know I I already know what the short term traders are saying. You can pre-program moves and create rules that will automatically buy and sell a stock for you at a given price. But in today's world, the assumptions that you made when you created those rules could be wrong a few hours later. So traders really just need to be actively engaged in the markets during trading hours, which can disrupt other areas of your life. You can absolutely preset rules. But if something happens, if a CEO has a heart attack or a plane crashes into a government building, you, you got to get back yeah. on that phone. You better be yeah. quick to jump. Yeah. yeah. So that's my two benefits. Less stress and less pressure on timing. I love it. Okay. So the third benefit is compounding interest. The eighth wonder of the world. Are there seven? It's eight. I think it's eight. This, it's the eighth. Well, I'm saying there's seven wonders and compounding interest is the eighth. But when you're a long-term investor and you reinvest your returns and your dividends, it all compounds, which leads to a higher balance in the end. Whereas when you trade frequently, you're disrupting that process. You're not really tapping into that. You're making basically a different bet and you're taking profit and you have to keep trading to take on the risk to grow your balance. Whereas when you're long-term investing, you're really just allowing that reinvestment and that compounding to do all of that for you. The last benefit to long-term investing is that you typically pay less in fees and taxes over time. So both are going to be taxed at capital gains, but short-term capital gains are usually taxed higher than long-term capital gains. So long-term capital gains caps out at around 20%, whereas short-term capital gains are taxed basically as regular income. So the more you make, the more you're basically going to pay in taxes on whatever you earned through trading. So this is definitely something that you want to keep in mind and something you want to Add into your forecast as you're thinking about what you're going to have to pay uh, in taxes to the IRS at the end of the year. I know a lot of people 
got caught up with that in 2020 and 2021 for sure. Another point I'd add here is that long-term investors can benefit from vehicles that allow you to defer taxes. And so you think about what things like 401ks or IRAs do. You're using pre-tax money to set money aside, and then you can make a decision around if you want to roll over and all those kinds of things. You don't really have that benefit when you're doing short-term trading. You're typically using post-tax dollars, right? So there's like this built-in kind of cost to that as well. You want to make sure that you're factoring it in. And the last one, while it might be minor, but just kind of depends on your situation is the impact of transaction costs. Whenever you're buying a stock, and even if it's commission-free, that's you know, it doesn't really matter. There are typically some of these smaller fees that are involved, like transaction costs. If you're trading every single time you trade, you're going to have to pay a fee for that particular trade, right? We just talked about how Robinhood makes money on that. And while that might not seem like a lot, when you're long-term investing, you don't really have to worry about that. Short-term trading, every single trade, in and out, buy and sell, you're paying some type of fee. And of course, there are going to be some platforms that waive that and those kinds of things. It's just something to be mindful of so that as we're trying to compare these, I don't want to say apples and oranges, it's more like Honeycrisp versus Fiji apples. You know, It's the same kind of thing, <laughs> but they're different sizes. One's a little sweeter than the other. You just want to make sure that you're factoring in all of those other details into your calculations. Yes. I was just about to say you haven't dropped a food metaphor in a couple of episodes. If trading was a seasoning, which one would it be? Right. Like I was thinking this is why I don't come up with food metaphors. I was thinking vinegar where like you appreciate the bite, but like too much of it can be problematic. I was actually going to say Tabasco, (laughs) but Tabasco (laughs) is like a very vinegary hot sauce. But it's like, it's like, yeah, you just need like a little touch. It's fine. But, like you know, we're not smothering things over here. (laughs) We're not drinking it straight. We're definitely not taking shots. (laughs) Right. Unless it's like a bad bet and you like, you know, you lost. So. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's do, let's do some final thoughts. What Cue the got? music, DJ. <laughs> All right. My final thought is an observation that I've learned. I've learned that whenever I get a chance to have a longer time horizon, life just feels calmer. So whatever you decide based off today's episode, whether you want to dabble in short-term training or just be a long-term investor, keep that in mind and just begin with the end in mind. If you plan to try trading, make sure that you're answering how will you ensure that you can control for some of the risks that we talked about? And then how can you update your estate plan so that your beneficiaries know what to do in your absence? With something that is this active, you really need to have a very clear-cut plan for the people and the loved ones that you may leave behind that are dependent on on that income. And like I said at the top of the hour, I'm not anti-trading, especially if you're doing it using some basic fundamentals. But I have learned that there are a lot of benefits to playing the long game, whether it's in life, business, or personal development. So that's what I'm choosing to do right now. I love it. Okay, so my final thoughts are, I know several people who trade. I know very few people who do it well and only a handful who are able to do it full time. Secondly, I know even fewer people who do it so well that they can live entirely off the income that they generate from trading. Now, those who do do it full time and dare I say, do it obsessively. So while I think it's something that people can learn, practice and eventually develop into a skill that provides supplemental income, just keep in mind that it also takes a good bit of money to generate a significant amount of return, like Kirsten mentioned earlier in this podcast. I think another way of putting it is to say like you need big money and you need to be willing to take big bets with that money to get big returns. I personally do not think that people should be trading for retirement because if you're anything 
something like the people who were a part of the studies in, what was it, Brazil, Taiwan, or the study that they did in the University of California, I'm 99% confident that you're not going to be happy with those results. And so I'm not saying you're not special. I'm not saying you're not unique. And I'm not saying I'm not rooting for you. But I do think that you really, really want to make sure that you're factoring all of the risks involved, all of the time involved that is required in order for you to get the kind of results that you're probably dreaming about. I love it. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success. We know you have lots of options and we wouldn't trade you for the world. (laughs) So if you like what you heard, please take some time to leave us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. We will see y'all next week. 